because I always felt, you know, if I have this problem, very likely other people will have it too. It's always the what if. What if this becomes bigger? What if there's millions of people using it? And then what happens when we extract that data and we can build other tools on top of that? And that's how we started Mendeley, built it into one of the world's largest platforms for scientific research over the next five years. Before we knew it, Jan and I were invited to the White House. Welcome to the Digital Transformer Podcast, your number one podcast on digital innovation, transformation, and venture building. We help entrepreneurs and corporate innovation leaders like you gain the knowledge and skills you need to build the leading digital businesses of your industry. Today, I talk to Victor Hanning, serial entrepreneur, investor, and former advisor to the UK and Dutch government on technology policy. Victor went from opening and raising 75,000 for the first student cafe in the town where he did his bachelor's to building Mendeley, one of the world's leading platforms for scientific research. After a successful exit, he went then on to build the world's best smartphone camera system with Fjorden. Victor has been nominated Best European Startup Entrepreneur by TechCrunch and holds investments in more than 15 companies. We'll talk about how to identify strong customer pain points and build a business around it, how to organically acquire tons of customers in B2B and in B2C, and other core learnings of building leading tech companies. So with no further ado, let me welcome Victor. Awesome to have you, Victor. Let's start a bit on a personal note. What made you become the entrepreneur that you are today? It's hard to know. I think I've always liked inventing things from when I was a kid, whether it was with Lego or later when I was uh, learning bass guitar, I had all these ideas for things that I would like to make learning and playing the bass guitar easier. So I drew up some notes and sent it to a bass guitar company. Obviously they rejected all those ideas, but uh, I don't know. I've, I've always enjoyed coming up with ideas and trying to make them real. When I was at VHU, where you study as well, I co-founded the Entrepreneurship Club together with my friend Jan. And as one of the projects out of that, we happened to open the Corova Bar, which was opposite the university for a couple of years. I think now it's sadly closed down because the owners of the house passed away. But that was my first startup. And then afterwards, I went to graduate school, did a PhD, was originally set on becoming a scientist, but then again, dissatisfied with the tools I had for working on my PhD. And I figured there has to be a better way of you know, managing all of my research papers and organizing my notes and collaborating with the other scientists that I was working with. And that became the genesis for my first proper startup, Mendeley, which I then also founded together with my friend Jan. I think we're already like right, right in the story of you know, my, my first company. So I'll just keep going. I think that, as I said, you know, the, the problem that I had was I was dissatisfied with the tools that I had and I wanted to come up with something better. And I've always enjoyed this process of brainstorming, drawing up ideas for how I could improve a status quo or a product and, and make it work better for myself. Because I always felt, you know, if I have this problem, very likely other people will have it too. I'm, I'm not that, you know, uncommon. So if I can solve a problem for myself, I'm sure I can solve it for many other people just the same. And that's how we started Mendeley and yeah, built it into one of the world's largest platforms for scientific research over the next five years. Which is an incredibly impressive experience. And I think what's interesting is because you, you started talking about this passion for exploring things, for creating something new. 
And you also see parallels, which we we'll touch upon later, is to Fjordan, because you also told me, hey, like very early on, you, you, your parents get you a little camera and you've been like all about exploring. And that's something that ultimately then led to the second story that you're working on right now, which is Fjordan. But what I wanted to point out and, and what I would like to deep dive into with you is you found basically two companies that are very, very different. Like one, the one you mentioned before, Mendeley, more like a B2B business, more tech like Zans, a platform software. And the other one, let's say a hardware B2C company. And that to me is, is very outstanding because a lot of com- founders just go out there, build one thing, sell it, and then build the same thing again maybe in a slightly different industry. You basically shifted completely, did something new, which also gives you a, a ton of experiences and a, and a very rich insight into funding software as well as hardware companies, B2B as well as B2C companies, which makes it super interesting, but which I imagine is also a very, let's say, yeah, tough challenge to, to face. and. You already started. Let's maybe start with that that point. Like, what triggered the found, uh, founding of both companies, and and what was the major challenge that you faced yeah. in the early days? Yeah. You're right in that they're both very different, but of course, there's many similarities because both are at the end of the day tech companies. And the similarity in both and what triggered the founding of it was a dissatisfaction with the status quo. So as I've already said, with Mendeley, it was a dissatisfaction with how the process for managing my research was super manual. And I thought there has to be a better way. I'm sure I can automate a lot of this work by building software that can extract information from the research papers that I've already stored on my computer and make sense of them for me. So that was the first one. And with Fjorden, um, as you've mentioned, like I've always been hugely into cameras. In fact, I, I still have the very first camera that my dad bought in, I think, 1980 sitting on my desk. This this is the one that started everything. It's a Rolli 35. And from when I was a kid, I was just fascinated with this thing, you know, everything about it, like the, the mechanical aspects, all the levers and buttons it was just a fantastic toy. But then when I grew up, I, I spent a lot of money on cameras, kept doing so much to the dismay of my wife. <laughs> always, always a new camera, always a new lens. And in camera circles, it's known as gear acquisition syndrome, right? It's always the next camera that's the, the real one that you need. The real one, you're right. So, exa- so I've got like uh, four sitting on my desk right now. But when I became a dad, I noticed that there's all these great moments that you have with your kid, but I never had my camera with me. But I always have my phone in my pocket, right? And I wanted to replicate the experience of having a real camera with my phone. And again, it was a dissatisfaction with the way that smartphone cameras work. I mean, they take amazing photos, but the user experience is pretty bad. Like you're always holding it with kind of one hand and then you're swiping with your thumb on the touch screen. And very often you only have one hand free. I mean, you're holding maybe your baby or you're holding a dog's leash or you're holding a shopping bag while your kid is walking in front of you and you want to capture it. And it's super tricky doing everything with one hand. So that was the idea for building Fjorden, which is a smartphone camera grip that gives you real camera controls, but on an iPhone. And it's small and pocketable, so you can always have it with you. And it has all the controls that you expect from a real camera, like a two-stage shutter, a multifunction dial for setting exposure value, shutter speed, ISO, a zoom lever, and it feels great in the hand. So again, the similarity was that I wasn't satisfied with the solutions that were there. 
I had tried everything else that was out there. In the case of Mendeley, there was EndNote, which I was forced to use during my master's thesis and the beginning of my PhD. There were some other tools that just kind of were the same thing, but, you know, different names, but same principle, everything super manual and not a good user experience and very clunky. And with Fjorden, there were obviously their selfie sticks and there were things that were essentially selfie sticks in a different form factor, things that you can clamp onto your phone and that have a shutter button and that's it. And if you're a more advanced photographer, you want to have more control over your camera. You want the same, you know, half press to focus, full press to release the shutter. You want to be able to adjust exposure on the fly. You want to be able to zoom in and out. And none of those things could do that. And again, just as with Mendeley, I thought, I think I can come up with a better way of doing this. And that's how I went to the drawing board. And again, similar with with Mendeley, I went into Photoshop, or first actually was on paper, just sketching up a UI of what it could look like, and then building it in Photoshop. With Fjorden, at first I sketched on paper of what it could look like, and then I built a prototype out of cardboard that I actually still have in my shelf over there. Just like, what what would the principle be of how it could work like? And then you work from there and you try and actually make it more and more real with each iteration and each prototype. And how did you go about testing that? Because I think it's it's a very, let's say, it's a step that's very close to most people where they say, hey, this is a period, like, this is a problem I experienced myself. I want to find a solution for it. But A, there might, like, sometimes people over, like really overestimate the market size, like the amount of other people that have the problem or the same problem. And B, how do you do you like then validate it, whether the market is big enough in order to, let's say, go about this? Yeah, I've never been driven by this initial search for a huge market. It always, for me, came from wanting to solve my own problem. And for me, that was the main attraction and the fun in solving a problem that I knew existed and that I had and that I thought I had a solution for. And the funny thing was when we started Mendeley, and this was around the time that we all left the VHU, so the business school, and most of our classmates went to McKinsey, Boston Consulting. And uh, so Jan and I were talking to our friends about this idea. And, you know, they went into the McKinsey database and the Boston Consulting database, which of all of these market research tools, and they were looking into the potential market. And they basically told Jan and me, oh, guys, I think you're wasting your time. There's like a market of maybe 80,000 people there, you know, uh, and if you're lucky, you can get 20,000. Fast forward a couple of years, we were signing up 20,000 people like every week or so with Mendeley. So, you know, you can, you can get these market estimations wildly wrong. And, and how, many, how many times have we looked at a company and went, I never could have imagined that this would be like a billion dollar startup. I mean, the latest, I think that the biggest acquisition ever of a startup was just this past month, Figma, right? A design tool. Uh, who would have thought that an online design tool gets acquired for 19 billion? Like something, something that started out as a tool for making uh, mock-ups of, of user interfaces, of which there existed a ton already. Like, you know, when, when we were doing Mendeley, there was a tool that was called Bamboo, I think, that I was using. And there, there was a ton of them just to make sketches of, of user interfaces. And of course, Figma had a much bigger vision than that to become like a general purpose collaborative design tool on the cloud. But I think these initial market estimations, you can be so wrong and, and you know, like overestimating or underestimating. And for me, it, it always comes back to, do I think there's a problem that I would enjoy solving? And again, trusting that if I have this problem, there's going to be a lot of other people who have it. And it turns out that in the case of Mendeley, it's, it's pretty much every other scientist had that problem as well. And with photography, the bet is for me that 
I'm not the only one that enjoys using cameras. And there's like hundreds of millions of photographers and they all use smartphones and smartphones are getting better all the time and more powerful all the time. So I'm sure that there's lots of other people that want to use real camera controls on a smartphone. And again, I think, you know, there were a couple of people that I talked to that said, oh, I'm not sure how big this could be. And again, like we're super early, but I've now been doing this for, we launched last year and we've surpassed a million dollars in sales already. And it's growing about 20% every month. So we're aiming for, you know, 3 million plus this year. And I'm sure it's going to keep growing. That's impressive, which I think is like, in a way, is very controversial because let's say that the common wisdom is check the market size, check the competitors, like do the copycat thing. But but your approach is really, really different from that. When you say, hey, ultimately, I just really focus on, on what I believe is a pain point that other people will also have, one that I want to solve for myself. And this probably also gives you this, let's say, additional motivation and power and like drive to really do what it takes to overcome whatever hurdle you might face along the way. Yeah, I didn't want to dismiss doing marketizing. Obviously, I think it's important to do that. But for me, it's not the first step. The first step is identifying a problem that I intimately understand because I have it myself. So I believe that I have a good approach to solving it. And of course, I still then check market sizes, right? Like I did check with Mendeley. We knew that there was a lot of money in academic publishing and academic data. And of course, we had a bigger idea than just doing like document management. The idea for Mendeley, when we really, you know, went this light bulb moment of, oh, if we actually help millions of scientists to manage their research papers and we extract all this information automatically, what else can we do with that data? We can build a real-time database of what every scientist in the world is working on and what the scientific research trends are and which fields uh, collaborate and what might be interesting problems to solve for scientists next, right? So you get all of this other second-order data that's immensely useful and scientific publishing is $20 billion industry, which is hugely profitable. I mean, the company that ended up buying Mendeley, uh, Elsevier, has bigger profit margins than Apple or Google. Like, uh, it's about 30-something percent in an operating margin. So we looked into this before we started or while we were, you know, toying with the idea for Mendeley. And we always realized that the market wasn't just, you know, let's sell a couple of software licenses to academics, but it's always the what if. What if this becomes bigger? What if there's millions of people using it? And then what happens when we extract that data and we can build other tools on top of that? And with Fjorden, again, the the bet is, or was for me when I started this process two years ago, I looked at the charts and it's clear that cameras are being completely replaced by smartphones. You can see, you know, when the iPhone launched, camera sales fell off a cliff and they've been down 90% since the launch of the iPhone. And this year, the CEO of Sony Semiconductor, which is the largest maker of smartphone imaging chips, predicted that in two years from now, 2024, smartphone camera performance is going to surpass the performance of interchangeable lens cameras, like the ones that I have here on my desk. Because computational photography is becoming better and better. You have LiDAR sensors. There's another paradigm shift coming down the pipeline where you replace uh, optical lenses with nanomaterials so-called meta lenses, which will break the relationship between lens size and sensor size. You'll be able to have like super tiny lenses on massive sensors. That's going to be a game changer. So with this massive shift happening of photography shifting from standalone cameras to mobile, 
obviously I have much bigger ideas around what Fjorden can be. It's not just going to be a small camera grip. It's a whole ecosystem of hardware and software around mobile photography. But you start somewhere, right? You solve a problem that you know and that you think is interesting and you look into the market and you see, oh, right, there's like a, a massive tailwind, both you know with Fjorden uh, and with Mendeley, we identified much bigger opportunities down the line and then you just keep solving problem after problem. And I think it's it's really interesting because right now, as you as you're explaining it to me, to the audience, you really realize this difference in a way that it makes, like if, if you're passionate about the product in your personal life, how you can also, let's say, how you're way more aware of what's like about to happen of the different trends, the different pros and cons and stuff. So that ultimately also then helps to, let's say, create create the business case around it. What I would find super interesting is because you said you, you start with your personal problems. How did you then, both in cases of Mendeley and Fjorden, go about finding peers that have similar problems? How did you like find these individuals in the university sense as well as right now the photographers to somewhat validate these prototypes and then ultimately build the company from there? It was two different approaches for Fjorden and Mendeley. I think with Mendeley, because we were three German founders, we very deliberately took the choice of ignoring the German market and going to the US and the UK first, because we didn't want people signing up to Mendeley and looking at the network part of it and thinking, oh, this is just for Germans, right? So what we did was we very much focused on the vision and formulating a mission that we felt people wanted to get behind. And that would help us out and would help us gain word of mouth. So for the first probably year or two years or so of Mendeley, I set aside about half a day a week to just write a blog post about the trends that I was seeing in science, which was at the time it was called Open Notebook Science or Science 2.0 was another catchphrase because, you know, Web 2.0 was happening and Science 2.0 was this idea that people would be more open with what they were doing and they would be sharing almost in real time the, the raw data from their lab and then keep their lab notebooks open. And that had many benefits like replicability. Other people could replicate your experiments, maybe point out errors. Not that people necessarily want to be, you know, be pointed <laughs> out if they've done a mistake, but it's it, in theory, it's a good thing for science, right? Like if you can catch errors earlier, but also the, the personal benefit was that people could claim precedence. So instead of submitting your scientific paper to a journal, going through a review process that might take up to like a year maybe till the paper gets published, bam, on day one, you put your result out there with like a short write-up. You say, we've done this experiment, it shows X, Y, Z, and thereby you can claim precedence and you've done this experiment and you've gotten the result first. So you don't get scooped by somebody else, which is a huge anxiety that, that scientists have. So that was one of the big ideas. And with Mendeley, we felt that we could make science more open, more collaborative, and accelerate the progress of science that way. So every week, I would write a blog post about you know these trends and how Mendeley was playing into them and what we would do to make that trend bigger and accelerated. So for example, we all of the data that we gathered and anonymized and, uh, and put into our database we built an API that let others build applications on top of that data. And we made it available under Creative Commons license. And that was huge because all of this data was previously locked behind paywalls. And suddenly you had this massive trove of data. And I think within three years, Mendeley actually became the world's largest scientific database just by crowdsourcing all of this information. And then we made it available through an API under Creative Commons license completely for free. 
And people were building applications on top of that that are still being used, you know, alternative ways of measuring scientific impact, for example, or building recommendation engines for, for research papers. And by having this mission that was so obviously helping science become better and faster and more open and more connected, we had a ton of people, you know, picking up on this and wanting to help us spread the word. And they were emailing us, commenting on our blog, saying, hey, what can I do to help? And so we said, okay, let me, you know, we created presentations that people could hold on their campus to help spread us the word. And then once we realized, hey, we can scale this, we built something called the Mendeley Advisor Program, where after probably a year or two, we had about 4,000 advisors on campuses around the world who were giving over 10,000 presentations on Mendeley and how to use it and set up local user groups. And that was, first of all, an amazing tool for word of mouth and for user growth. And then ultimately, an amazing B2B sales tool, which is they helped us identify the decision makers on campus for when we had like B2B subscriptions. And they, in many cases, set up the first meetings. And in the case of our first customer, which was Stanford University, there was a Stanford professor who was a Mendeley advisor who said, I'll set up the meeting I'll come into the meeting and then he made the pitch for us in the meeting <laughs> and said, I, I, I use this tool in my lab. I make all my students use it. We should subscribe to the premium edition for the whole campus. And that's how we got our first B2B customer. That's incredible. So that was um, that basically all because we had this amazing mission that people wanted to get behind. And because you constantly communicated it. And I think like, so you just put it out there, right? Like you, you just put the block out there and just like let people find it? Or did you, let's say, proactively, you know, send out emails say, to to current students, to professors saying, hey, this is this might be interesting to you. Did, did you really just post the blog out there, wait it, so to speak, till people would pick it up and then start sharing it? The, the blog was the main vehicle, but then we interacted on social media. So back then in 2008, uh, I think, I'm not sure if Twitter was even launched in 2008. And Facebook didn't have the news feed, but there was a platform called FriendFeed, which Facebook later acquired, and which I think then formed the basis for the news feed. And the founder of FriendFeed became the CTO of, of Facebook. But FriendFeed was where all the scientists were hanging out, especially the people that we were interested in, the you know open, open notebook science and science 2.0 crowd. And so we were participating in all the discussions and we were definitely not spamming. You know, We were not like, hey, check out what we were doing, but we were just substantively engaging in all the discussions about shaping this, this, new, this new way of doing science and, and all the tools that surrounded it. And there were, of course, other bloggers, and we commented on their blogs and engaged in discussions in the blogs. And again, not in a spammy and salesy way of, hey, check out you know, my, my startup, but like generally participating in what frameworks there should be, the copyright situation around doing this stuff, um, what other tools might be helpful, because, of course, Mendeley wasn't the only one. Yeah, just generally you know, participating in the discussion and helping out. And then we actually also, we published uh, scientific papers around this concept like, you know, recommender engines and we participated in scientific conferences where we uh, talked about this concept of open notebook science. And all those became great ways of getting in touch with decision makers. Like, you know, one thing led to another. And then before we knew it, Jan and I were invited to the White House to, to give a talk to um, the uh, scientific advisor to President Obama about, you know, what we were doing with Mendeley. So yeah, it was all about this this mission, and one thing led to another. 
I think it's such a like beautiful illustration of how you really, let's say, took content marketing in a way and, and, and really like lived and also engaged in a community that is ultimately really fostering then the, the, the growth of a company. Because these days, a lot of companies say, okay, yeah, I got to have a blog. Yeah, I got to have a podcast. You got to like be on all social platforms and so on and so forth. But really what you did is like crystallize where is my community and where's my core audience hanging out, so to speak, and then really continuously engage with them over a period of time that then led to, let's say, them picking up that, hey, these guys are doing something that is, yeah, disruptive, but highly valuable in a way. Now, I, think, I think it's funny that uh, it only just occurred to me when you use the term content marketing in some ways, that's what we're doing. Like it was content marketing, but I guess, you know, content marketing has this cynical ring to it where, yeah, we're just going to like churn out content. And in many cases, it's badly written, auto-generated using the new GP3, uh, GPT-3 tools or just spammy stuff for, for search engines. And that's obviously not how we were thinking about it, but we were, again, genuinely excited about this problem that we were solving because we were scientists ourselves and we genuinely believed in what we were doing and what others were doing was going to make science more open, more collaborative and faster. And that's why we were pushing all of this, this content, like our blog posts, our messages, our scientific papers, they were all about this topic. So yeah, it was content marketing, but not from like, from, we didn't come at it from a marketing standpoint, but more like, okay, like how do we let our community know that that's what we're doing and that we're doing something that's worth supporting? Super interesting. I mean, back at the time, I think like, if at all, content marketing was just like, a small thing like growing right so these days everyone knows about it but you said like it was back yeah. in 2008 i don't so. I, I i hadn't come across that term back then what was the major challenge when grow like when later on scaling mandalay into the the digital leader or and like one of the biggest platform there is these days i think the biggest challenge it came out of our inexperience. So we were first time founders. And even though we had amazing advisors, like our first investors were the engineers behind Skype, but they weren't in the office with us, right? So even though we showed them what we were doing and like we sent over diagrams for um, like our server setup and our database structure and everything, and they were like, yeah, it looks good, you know? So we thought we we're on the right track. But then as we kept growing, I think our inexperience became more and more important. Like as you're scaling, and you kind of learn uh, on the fly that's often not good enough. So because you know we were straight from university or graduate school and all the people that we'd hired, super talented, amazing guys, and we found them in the open source movement and they all went on to do amazing other things, but for them also it was their first job out of university. And uh, nobody in our team had ever built a platform that had 100,000 users, a million users, you know, 2 million users. And so as we were scaling up, we built a lot of technical debt. One was, again, an experience and how to just build these systems. The other one was uh, basically my fault because I was in charge of the product vision and I kept focusing on building new features. You know, I had this wish list in my mind of, okay, we need this feature and that feature and that feature to really make this a rounded user experience. But then what we ended up doing was we built way too many features with way too few people. So a feature would be released and then it was kind of half-baked. And instead of uh, spending the time to refine it, iterate, improve, 
we'd move on to the next one. And then that feature would kind of build up technical debt. And at some point it wouldn't work properly. And then you'd have to commit resources to try and fix it. And then something else would remain half-baked. And so over the years, this technical debt really slowed us down in our execution. I think we had many opportunities, both in terms of business development and product, product development that we couldn't capitalize on because we just couldn't build fast enough because all of this technical debt was slowing us down. And then ultimately we realized, okay, we have to bring in more experienced engineers. Uh, we brought in like a super experienced VP of engineering who led this process of rewriting basically our entire platform. And uh, that was painful, right? And ultimately we got over that, that hump to a point where we could execute again. But that was really what held up scaling the most, I feel. And then the funny thing was that I repeated that mistake with Fjorden, but in a different way without realizing. So I thought, you know, ha, I've learned my mistake from, from Mendeley. I'm not going to make the same mistake with Fjorden. I'm not going to build something that's overly complex. Like with Mendeley, we were trying to do multi-platform. So Windows, Mac, Linux, web, and mobile. Way too much with a small team. So with Fjorden, I thought, okay, you know, I could do this in theory for both Android and iOS. But no, I'm going to keep it simple. I'm only going to do iOS. And then in the software as well, let's not build too many features. Let's just focus on making that initial experience of just a camera that, you know, hardware controls, I press a button, it captures a photo. I can make some basic adjustments to the image, but nothing too fancy in the first version, which is what we did. And, and that was great. So the software side of things, we kept it deliberately simple. We only did iOS. And I thought, you know, okay, learn my lesson. It's going to be much easier this time around. But then as we were doing our Kickstarter campaign to get the first set of pre-orders for Fjorden. Uh, so as an aside, I think for hardware, it's a very common way of doing it like that you get pre-orders, market validation and upfront capital for paying for the tooling and the, uh, the material pre-orders and then the first manufacturing run as you do crowdfunding. So when we're setting up the Kickstarter campaign, I was thinking, okay, how can I build various bundles, you know, a basic bundle, which is just a grip, then a second bundle, which is a grip and a case, and then a third bundle, which is uh, a grip, a case, and maybe some other accessories like uh, wrist straps. And then we thought, you know, with wrist straps, people have personal preferences. And we went with, okay, let's make a leather version and a rope version, and each in two different colors. Because, you know, how, how difficult could it be to get some wrist straps, right? You go on Alibaba and you find some and you maybe make some small modifications. No big deal. Turns out that that was what nearly killed us this summer when in China, it was like, as you recall, over the pandemic, China has the zero COVID policy to this day, where if there's an increase in cases in a certain region, in a certain town, they just lock up the whole district. Like people don't leave their house Workers don't go to the factory. Everything gets shut down, like no courier deliveries from one part to the next. And so when you're doing physical manufacturing and you have to move goods around from, say, one factory that does the plastic part to another factory that does spray painting, suddenly everything grinds to a halt. So that happened to us. And then all of those SKUs, so stock keeping units, like variations of products, I then learned, again, learning curve, doing something for the first time, hardware. There's a term for this called skewnami. So we were buried under the Skunami. We had too many product variations. And then once one product wasn't available, that held up everything else. So for example, turns out that sourcing cognac leather, 
like the type of leather that we wanted in the particular color in a small volume wasn't so easy. And then you get samples and the samples don't quite match your expectations. They're too hard or too soft or they tear too easily. And then you figure out, okay, maybe we have to put like a layer of like material in between to prevent the tearing. And then suddenly something as simple as a wrist strap becomes massively complex and consumes your, your management time and, and resources. And then people, of course, have ordered this wrist strap, so you can't ship until you have the wrist strap. And so suddenly, like a quarter of your orders are held up by this stupid little wrist strap, which is, you know, in theory sounds so easy, but suddenly you have like, you know, a thousand people being angry at you for delaying their shipment for months because this wrist strap just isn't ready or gets delayed by the vendor. And then like, you know, in this particular example, they had a factory fire. So the factory burned down and they were like, okay, we, we have to, uh, we, we can't deliver your order. And this was, like, oh my God, we have to restart this whole process, find a new vendor, source new materials, restart the production, go through the whole process of like verifying the prototypes again, like setting us back for months. Again, thousand orders waiting just for this wrist strap. We can't afford to ship twice because we're shipping by airmail from Hong Kong, which during the pandemic was insanely expensive. So again, um, something that we thought was simple, a, a feature, if you will, like, you know, hey, let's, let's just make one more color wrist strap. How difficult could it be? Just ended up complicating things massively. And we had this uh, insane delay just because of this, this one small thing. So again, the, the, the learning would be both from Mendeley and from Fjorden, keep things as simple as you can, right? Keep it simple, stupid. And I guess, you know, we, in business school, you hear about Henry Ford saying, Every customer can have any car that they want as long as it's black. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I should have done the same. You can have a wrist strap as long as it's black. And you know, one wrist strap, one variation would have been enough. And I went like, oh, it would be nice to have more colors. And that was just stupid. Um, I should have kept it simple. I should have learned from the mistake of Mendeley and kept it simple. So yeah, again, keep it keep it simple. I think that's such a core learning because like from personal experience, you're, you're really tempted to say, hey, like we, you want to grow as fast as possible. And part of it is like growing the products in like as rich of a variety as you can imagine, right? Because that's ultimately showing how, how good everything is already. But it's true about like perfecting first one step and then the other. On the, on the side note, how, how did you then deal with these thousands of people uh, that had to, let's say, that it were waiting angry that they wouldn't get their product shipped on time massively being transparent i think is the only solution and i mean that's one thing that we learned at mendeley as well and because we were always out there like i was writing the blogs i was on twitter we also had this thing where everyone on the team at mendeley had to do customer support at least i think I think once, one day every quarter we made it, if my memory serves me right, just so that everybody on the team would understand the problems that our customers were encountering in the software. And of course, sometimes we made mistakes and sometimes terrible mistakes, like there'd be data loss or there'd be crashes and people's work would be lost and people would be super angry. So the only thing you can do at that point is own up to your mistake, apologize, and ideally make it super personal. Like, you know, I would try and respond to as many messages as I could myself at Mendeley and same at Fjorden. Like I was writing all our updates uh, when things were going really, really badly with manufacturing in China. I was writing updates every week, every other week during my summer holidays. I was on calls constantly uh, and then writing updates, writing emails, answering every single comment that came in uh, and signing with my name. So people knew they were talking to me. 
the founder. And I think that in many cases, if you make people feel heard, that takes a lot of the anger away and they appreciate that you're genuinely trying to help, you know, and I would, I would try and give as much information as I could, even though it obviously is very, very time consuming. If somebody says, where's my order? I wouldn't say it's going to ship next week. I would say it's going to ship next week. It's been delayed because this particular vendor promised us this delivery date. It didn't happen. So we sourced somebody else. It's going to come into a warehouse today. We're going to package it. It takes two days and then it's going to be shipped out next week. And then people really know that you are you know, trying to solve the problem. You're responding. You're taking the time. And, and this extreme customer focus ultimately pays off where you see people defending you, right? When things go badly, other people will say, hey, you know, I know that they care. I know that they respond. Give them time. I know they're they're on this. Uh, and you have people starting to take your side uh, and that helps as well. And I think it's, it's very important to, as you mentioned, have everyone interact in the company with as or be part of customer service so that they stay close to the real customers, stay close to the business and really also understand why am I building the piece of software I'm building right now or why am I doing this marketing campaign? Like who's ultimately behind that? What kind of real pain points might they experience along the way? And just to like give it a way more customer-centric focus. And I think the other point is that you pointed out is about really making it personalized. And I mean, there's so many examples out there of really bad customer service. And I think really taking the time, especially as a founder, to to respond to these issues will also continuously provide you with the insights that you then need to maybe refine your messaging, your product, because you get those insights. Like these are the people you are like your customers or potential customers that are giving you real-time feedback that then helps you to to improve. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's important that your team understands the customer problems. And that's why dog fooding is so important as well, right? Like using your own product, which we're doing at Mendeley because I was still finishing my PhD while building the company. And with Fjordan, we've all been using the prototypes since the early days. So we know immediately if something goes wrong and what we can improve. And that just makes such a difference. In hindsight, you've had a tremendous journey uh, with several companies, had like a lot of experiences in, in the various domains, also as an investor, by the way, and as an advisor to to UK and Danish, Danish government. Looking Dutch, back... Dutch government, yeah. Oh, Dutch, sorry. <laughs> Dutch government. Looking back... What would be the one tip that you would give aspiring founders or those who are already funding their companies or who are in the corporate context, driving innovations there, bringing out new products, new services? What would you give them as an advice to to succeed on that journey? I think it's hard to generalize because I think a lot of it comes that comes down to like obviously the circumstance of the company and personal uh, circumstance and personality of the founder. But for me, I think it's about picking problems that you understand. Like if, if you understand the problem, then I think you're obviously 90% uh, uh, there on the way to the solution, right? It's still a skill to build products because otherwise it wouldn't be so hard and we wouldn't be facing so many bad user experiences out in the world. So it's not obvious, but understanding a problem and then trying to come up with ways of fixing them that make sense for yourself, I think are really important. And being honest with yourself as well. Like if something is, is not working or if if something might be wishful thinking, like you might think, oh, if I only did this, that's going to fix everything. 
and sometimes it doesn't. And also in, in uh, startups and corporations, I've seen wishful thinking where people are driven by a decision that makes sense because of the bottom line. And then they kind of try and shoehorn a decision in, in a way that they make it sound like it's beneficial for the user, but it's not really. It's for the bottom line, right? And those things never work. I'm not going to name names or companies. I've <laughs> seen it firsthand where in meetings, people were saying, yeah, we should do this because that really benefits the user. And I went, you're just saying that. But honestly, like we, we none of us around this table believes that. It's just because it makes sense for the bottom line. But it, it's just sugarcoating it. Exactly, yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much for joining us today. An absolute pleasure. And it's been really insightful to hear from your journey, both from Mendeley's side as well as from, from Bjorn's side. And especially having this, let's say, focus or these insights from two very different perspectives, B2B, B2C, software, hardware, but ultimately all tech. I wish you all the best with your endeavor and yeah, hope to see you very soon again. Thanks, Kilian. It was my pleasure too.